0: Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. As promised, it is border week here at Tony Katz today. Me, I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz today. Find everything at TonyKatz.com and put this together with Americans for Prosperity, Americans for Prosperity.org. Of course, I went down to visit the border over the summer. And we've been talking about the issues and the challenges. So I got a chance to speak to Chris Clem, the former Border Patrol chief of the Yuma sector, who spent years building his way up the ranks to eventually being Border Patrol chief before retiring, really to get an understanding of not only the the importance of the wall, but, but how these problems at the border built themselves out. And so the first question that I asked him was... Where along the line did this start becoming a problem? He worked for multiple administrations, including the Clinton administration as a member of border patrol. When did this issue with the Southern border, with the amount of people coming over with our inability to be willing to defend it via policy or other uh, means, right? The actual physical uh, technology itself. When did this become the real issue that it is today?
1: Well, let's uh, let's uh, break it down even further. If you go back to 1994, when they uh, they passed the crime bill, the crime bill that uh, uh, during the State of the Union address, uh, President Clinton at the time, you know, talked about putting 5,000 uh, uh, law enforcement on the streets, and that included border guards. That was his language, border guards, and it was based off of uh, then a uh, former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan's, you know, uh, big uh, big push on immigration and illegal immigration reform. And so um, I was hired under that. So that was the first push to say, hey, we need to get illegal immigration under control. And so it was, it was people under Clinton and I was hired under that. Um, we were coming off the heels of uh, operation gatekeeper and hold the line where they built the first chain link fences along the border was the first real big step. Some old Vietnam era landing mat to control this, this huge flow of people. And it was mainly at the time, early in my career, Mexican nationals coming, uh, coming looking for work and a lot of seasonal, Immigration that you could trace back for 50 years, people coming in based on seasons. As it progressed, uh, obviously we had the horrors of 9 11, which brought everybody together to say, hey, we've got to look at this even, even great, greater, like right? from immigration perspective, visa problems to border security. And uh, uh, George Bush uh, pushed a lot of infrastructure. Uh, it's where we began building a lot more hardened walls and barriers because. Back in the early 2000s, uh, we had a lot of people driving across the border. And so we put a lot of uh, Normandy-style vehicle barriers up along the border to prevent that, that mode of transportation into the United States. Um, and then under under Obama, uh, we built a lot of wall. Um, it was legacy policies and, and laws and appropriations under Bush, but Obama continued to do that. And let's, let's go back in time to the beginning of uh, President Obama's second term, in 2012 there's a big push for comprehensive immigration reform and uh so the, the the left and the right said okay we'll give you that but you got to give us border security so if you meet the border security standards then we will pass something uh in, in in regards to reform and uh so they did and we built a lot of wall and we removed a lot of people and we rounded up a lot of criminal aliens across the country um and and things were going in the right direction and then uh politics got really involved and people argued over the definition of control what was control of the border what did that mean and uh and then President Obama I think he's that was an infamous cell phone and a pen uh a conversation and uh an executive fiat and I was actually in Washington D.C. as one of the leads for customs and border protection to execute under President Obama's uh, uh, executive orders and and so yeah everybody was making progress then we kind of then then it got poli- political It got political at the latter part of of the obama administration and and as an agent now i was up in washington d so you're dc at the time so you're in the mix of it. i mean you can't ignore politics when you're in washington but the agents themselves and the agency didn't want to get involved in that then comes candidate trump and it was about building the wall and um and that was a campaign slogan build the wall and for us as agents it was a wall system. It was a wall package. It was so much more than uh, a brick and mortar. It was technology. it was access roads, it was cameras. It was policies that would help us really secure that border because we started seeing that lag at the last few years of of President Obama. while he was pushing it, then he kind of flatlined it. Um, well, when uh, it became President Trump and we implemented all the, the requirements that we had, Things were things were going great. I mean, the numbers uh, of people that were coming in uh, had had dropped. Uh, we were having a great time as as an agency because we had the tools we needed to do our job. And I would say that it was a kind of the the, the climax of my career was that those few years under President Trump. Now, I, w- I will say this: um, the policies were effective, but I like to say clunky but effective. I mean, we. We had to start stop a lot of times because things weren't ironed out yet. You know, uh, there were people were so quick to get out there and do something, um, but uh, it made a difference when you had the infrastructure in place, you had the policy in place, you know, and, and the support coming from the White House to say, "Hey, we're we're knocking this down. We're tired of this." Um, boy, it was a great time to be a border Patrol agent. Even, even so, let's yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Let let let's let's go back just for a minute before yeah. we start
0: really digging on the concept of the wall itself the idea that politics got involved in yeah. your view in the view of other board, border patrol agents that you uh, spoke with
1: what were the politics yeah so it was it was you know uh so the campaign right it really kind of got involved well we'll start with the uh with uh, president obama uh, when as soon as they uh, that administration started kind of putting the migrants and giving a uh migrant those that have been here illegally kind of a pass or well if they're if they're going to come over here and try to reunite with family you need to to let them go right and it's like wait a second that's not what the law says we have to prosecute them we have to process them there's things we have to do and they kind of started meddling if you will Into the day to day operations because they wanted to control that narrative. Then comes along meddling,
0: the same as micromanaging.
1: Yeah, I would say that right because look, you know, it's a kind of a a known saying for any of the of the agencies that uh, are based out of D.C. is that three thousand mile screwdriver. You know what what law says and what policy says is what we would operate under there in in the field. But then all of a sudden they reached out with that screwdriver and said, no, 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 you're going to do it this way because. You know the executive branch has that authority by you know by under the constitution to to execute those things well it would really frustrate us because we knew what was right and wrong but then wait well hold on a second we're going to do it this way why why are we catching these people and releasing them why aren't we detaining them and letting them go through an adjudication process which is better for everybody okay so they may be detained for a few weeks or months but they're going to get a decision You know and then if the decision is to let them stay they can continue with the process if the decision is they have to be removed then they get removed and they get to the back of the line and try again um so that's that began the latter part of the obama administration then it became campaign candidate trump right and so he was building the wall right that was his campaign so now everything associated with candidate trump wall became border patrol the world was open to a whole new like what is this agency that he's talking about not a lot of people really knew about the border patrol and what we did unless you were along the border and uh and so that was kind of a, a big thing for us it put us in the limelight um we had kind of been just taking care of business you know we're we're a, a different breed of federal agents you know we just like to go out there and do our job we ride horses for a living sometimes you know um you know, then, of course, some of us like me, you know, we're in the office more times than we were in the field. But, um, uh, yeah, it was it, it became po- political. Then it became the think about the first few years of the Trump administration. Uh, he, he, once he lost control of the his party no longer had the House. They were going after him. Everything that he was doing, you know, right. and became a big thing. Right. And look, I can tell you this. I was the deputy chief of El Paso. Uh, during the trump administration uh the midway through the administration and uh and and el paso was pretty much ground zero for the border crisis that began uh, in 19. i couldn't turn around without tripping over a democratic congressional delegation coming down to figure out what was going on i mean it was it was one or once or twice a week like there was dozens of members of congress wanting to ask every question turn over every stone to see what was going on um and and that impacts the business flow of the operations for the border patrol, when agents have to, you know, watch what they're doing because Congress is coming to look and taking pictures, and you know, it just became so political. It's like, look, look we just want to do our job. We want to well, do. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. One
0: of the things uh, talking to uh, former Border Patrol Chief uh, Chris Clem, uh, Yuma Sector. One of the things that became political right away is the concept of the wall. Never mind the whole Mexico is going to pay for it. But the idea of a wall, we were told you can climb over it, you can dig under it, you can cut through it. Uh, The question for America is, do walls work? And so as a man who has experienced it, saw the construction of it, dealt with it in different sectors, Yuma sector being much different than Rio Grande Valley or El Paso,
1: do walls work? And if so, how? Yes so walls do work when they're uh, uh you know uh when we put them where we need them right um there hasn't been an agent uh, that I'm, i've ever met that says hey we need a wall, 2,000 mile wall from the gulf coast of the pacific ocean we need it where it makes sense and, and allow me to uh to kind of break this down a little bit the wall as it's designed based on our requirements is to deny or impede access into the united states or control and contain access into the united states there are places where it's right there on the border and there's places where we have to kind of concede based on river boundaries and things like that and it's very very important when we have urban areas along the border san diego el paso places in arizona where we have determined that the vanishing point for somebody that enters illegally is seconds to minutes If you've ever been to a border town el paso san diego area th- those are great examples where they can jump the fence, cross the river, and be in a neighborhood or a high school or an apartment complex in seconds. So that's where you need that wall to slow them down. And when you combine that wall with technology in the form of cameras and sensors to help agents do their job, that's where it really makes sense. So where we have put wall in those areas where we have a a very short vanishing time It has made a huge difference. It has given us the tactical advantage to do our job, and it's made areas safer. I mean, you can't refute it when you look at crime results in in like El Paso, uh, Texas. It's one of the most safest cities in America. A lot of it has to do with what we've done at the border.
0: Um, So people really when we talk about the wall and as you're discussing it, it isn't about stopping people because they're already in the United States in a lot of these places, especially when you talk about Rio Grande Valley. I've been in McAllen. The wall is is a mile, a mile and a half inland. And you get you get completely freaked out when the first time you see that and you realize it's not on the border. But you look at the winding nature of the Rio Grande. There's a moment where you could be in Texas, but south of Mexico. That's the level of winding of, of that sector. But the objective here is to slow people down to apprehensions. That is not something that gets discussed publicly. Why has there been no uh, real push to explain why that is so valuable to people like yourself and those
1: in Border Patrol? Well, I think oftentimes it becomes, uh, it, it can be a very emotional and divisive issue um, that can get, uh, you know, captured by uh, uh, political uh, uh, politicians and or uh, certain uh, media outlets right they want to stoke that fire and so if you tell the truth and say this is why it's designed it's there to give us a tactical advantage to help us slow down so we have a better chance of making an arrest to prevent bad people and bad things from coming in you know that then that makes sense right but if you if you just say you know this there's kind of this false choice of you know you either have a wall or you don't have a wall they're going to get over there or it's either going to work or not work look it's a combination of things you know Um, The wall slows them down when you have the the people in place and the technology in place, then you can make those arrests. And and look, if you if you've been to those areas of the border where you've seen this 30 foot wall with uh, the last six feet having this anti climb, look, it's very few people that can physically get over there without assistance. And so when you have the camera and the sensor look in there and you see somebody trying to make that uh, that attempted illegal entry, you can respond and you can make the result. But without that wall, they're they're going to go and they're going to vanish and they're going to be those gotaways, which we've known we've had a million and a half gotaways in the last three years. So we need to continue to push. The only way we're going to get a better chance at securing this border is to continue what we started. Yeah, you know we can we can smooth it out a little bit and make some uh, some adjustments, but we need to finish that infrastructure package that we packet uh, that we began a few years ago. And um, and when you have you know a secure border, then it makes sense to expand lawful legal pathways for people to come in the right way because they know the wrong way you're gonna you're not gonna be able to make it as easy.
0: I know? think I think it interesting that you you ranked them. I, I do this often. Um, you have to get this done before you can get to the to the next thing. Is that a position of you personally, Chief Clem, or is that a position of of, of Border Patrol that once you do this? Then you can get the other things going, but you got to start here, and I think that's where Americans are in a, in yeah. great measure. You got to start with securing the border.
1: Yeah, well, so that's my opinion. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, I'm a border security expert, not an immigration expert. I mean, there are are two different things in my book and, and the Border Patrol's book. We 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 have immigration authority. We have to process immigration cases, but our job is to secure the border. I, I you know, what happens to somebody after we are done uh, adjudicating our piece? Whether they're released, processed, turned over, removed, that's that's outside of, that's immigration. My job is to catch anything and everything that comes in between the ports of entry, or at least my job was. But yes, uh, Border Patrol agents are going to say, hey, let's secure that border first. Because you can go back to, to historical programs where you have added an easier, more efficient way to bring people in, you'll see a, a correlation to a decline in illegal entries because People sometimes just want to come here and work. You can go back to the '50s and '60s on the Bracero program and do that. But back to your point, yes, as a border patrol agent, and, and in my opinion, we have to start with a secure border. I mean, that's that's it's a foundation. Just like when you're building a home, you have to get the foundation right, or everything else will crumble. And we've experienced that over the last few years, actually the last several decades, because we, we'll the government's great at building band aids. Hey, we'll do this, we'll do that. But get that foundation right. Secure that border. And I think that opens up. It takes that piece off the table. So then maybe some of our common sense folks can go, hey, what what does business need? What do the communities need? What do we need to continue healthy, lawful immigration to continue to make America prosperous and grow? But if you don't have that foundation of a secure border and that's things are going to crumble because we can we can do all the things we want, uh, you know, militarily, everything around the world. However, there's always going to be threats. So we've got to get that secure. Last thing I'll say on that point, Tony, is, look, everywhere around this country, you have people that live in gated communities. You have locks on your front door. You have locks in your bedroom. If you're fortunate enough to have a bathroom in your bedroom, you got a lock on that door. But we will argue and we will become divisive and we will name call and finger point if we want to put a lock on our front door and just say, hey, come in the right way just come in the right way. Don't come in illegally. That keeps us secure. We just want to know who you are. Don't come in illegally. We will we will make that such a divisive issue. And I, I like to call it tall fences and wide gates. We need to have a country of tall fences, which is our border security, and then wide gates, which would be the lawful pathways for people to come in the right way. So in who they are and what your intentions are. And, and that's the way we should be looking at it. And that's my opinion, but that's kind of where I see the success going if, if we can get there. Chris
0: Clem, former Border Patrol Chief of the Yuma Sector. Just more of the part of Border Week that we're doing all week. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. This is Tony Katz Today. By now, I assume you've all heard about the Ramaswamy leak. Oh, big news, big, big news. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. The Ramaswamy leak because uh, presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, he was on a a live stream uh, yesterday with Elon Musk and uh, Alex Jones, whole host of of, of people doing this live stream, the spaces on on X. And the next thing you know, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy had to use the restroom. Oh, I'm sorry, maybe I, I didn't, maybe I didn't explain properly what kind of leak. Ramaswamy uses the bathroom and doesn't hit mute on his phone. And there were 100,000 people who were all part of this call, all part of this conversation, and um, they all heard it. Now, I think maybe the bigger story here is Alex Jones and Elon Musk and Ramaswamy's there, and what the heck is happening? That one, that one I think I got to dig into. I got to take some time with that. But, uh, yeah, that, that happened. As, uh, as they said, brings a whole new meaning to livestream. The jokes write themselves, people. I'm not responsible. Ugh. All I know is uh, Ramaswamy ended up being all wet. Wait, am I done? Am I out? Am I clean? Am I... Th- all right, everybody go wash their hands. This is... It's Tony Katz today. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Not a good weekend for sports in the great state of Indiana. The Pacers do not come home with the cup going down to the Lakers. Uh, the Colts had a chance to do everything right and chose not to play football against the Bengals. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. JMV joins us for 93.5, 107.5. The fan, he is the voice of sports in Indiana. Before we get to the Colts, the Sunday nearly night game, the Chiefs and the Bills, where the Chiefs lose once again. I mean, it's it's starting to get silly over there for the Kansas City Chiefs, but they lose on a penalty because Holmes has got the pass. The pass goes to Travis Kelsey. Kelsey, seeing that it was do or die time, they score or they lose with the lateral to Kadarius Tony. He runs it into the end zone, but wait, a flag. And Tony is off sides. Patrick Mahomes goes out of his mind. He goes back crap bananas crazy and then says you know the officials uh they decided this game they didn't leave it to the players uh talk to me about whether tony was out offsides uh he was and then um this mahomes reaction is this a message to his team or is this a guy who just for a moment lost his head
2: no it's a uh, frustration for him frustration for both he and andy reed their head coach too more than anything else because all you have to do is yeah, anybody can look at you know, where he lined up and he lined up off sides. And, oh, that's the call right there that you make when they line up off sides. So, this was built more out of frustration, out of them not being the team that you would expect them to be at this point. Now, you still have plenty of time to turn this thing around and to be more dominant or the dominant team that you thought. But, you know, it, it, I think it's also this, Tony. I think it's one of those, you know, it was a visionary play call, as you talked about. You accurately described it. Probably the play of the year, if that thing stands for for a potential game-winning touchdown. I think you lump all that together, and the fact that this has been a frustrating season for them not being as good overall is what they thought they were going to be. Just kind of boiled over with him, and you got that reaction. And then his head coach backed him up with that reaction as well, plus, um, listen, they, they, struggle. They struggled a couple of different times with the Colts game too. We talked about it all the time with the NFL officiating, but I mean, it's, it's open season on that right now. And I just thought Patrick Mahomes took that opportunity to be that level of frustrated and have it boil over to, uh, to call his shots against the officials in what has been a frustrating season for him to this point, even though they're still among the better teams in the AFC.
0: Let's bring it now to the Colts. Losing to the Bengals 34-14. The Colts are 7 and 6. The Colts have beaten their wins from last season. The Colts are a better team and have done better than anybody anticipated. And still they're the most frustrating team out there. Colts fans not happy. Gardner Minshew 26 of 39, 240 yards, one touchdown, one interception, no running game whatsoever. What the hell has happened to this offense?
2: Like I said, up and down roller coaster ride we talked about last week. And we talked about it last week in terms of Tennessee, Tony, of it being good, of it being solid, of it being exciting because the way that they want it, that is just this season in general. They're not that good. They can be better than average, but not much better than that. What they cannot do, they cannot outlast a couple of different things here, Tony. They can't outlast making mistakes. We've talked about that. We've normally talked about that in terms of the quarterback, Gardner Minshew, But yesterday, you know, it was penalties, whether right or wrong. And, you know, what was good in special teams was horrible in special teams yesterday, you know, considering the mistakes and, you know, Matt Gay and misses. And then what you do is factor in that the Cincinnati team is probably the best team they played in a while, even without Joe Burrow. They still have the best skill position players of any team. The Colts have played all season long so it was going to be tough, and that's what I talked about last week. You and I talked about this. I would have rather have seen the Bengals lose last Monday night in Jacksonville than win, man. Everybody around here got excited. Oh, we're going to track down Jacksonville. This is going to be great. Jacksonville already owns hugely the tiebreaker over you, um, and that was, a, that's, that was going to stand no matter what happens at Jacksonville. It's going to take a lot to get over them. But you've got to worry about these other teams here. You're going to worry about this Bengals team who now head-to-head owns the tiebreak over you. Thus, you're going to have the biggest game of the season. I mean, this is, I talk about must-wins all the time and people make fun of me. This is as must-win if you want to make the postseason as a must-win can be against the Steelers on Saturday because yesterday in all phases, the Colts simply didn't show up.
0: That's, that's an understatement. And it's weird because when when you uh, when you take a look when you take a look at how they have played in in, in some previous games, the, the the some of the special teams play has been unbelievable. Some of the defensive play has been unbelievable. Yeah. The Jets def- I'm not the Jets. See they, that's that's how bad they made me think of the Jets. The Colts yeah. defense got picked apart by the Bengals backup quarterback, and Jake Browning is not a nothing. That guy can throw. They got. Picked apart, fleeced JMV. That's the best way to describe it.
2: You know, you watched on Monday night, too. The Bengals do the same thing. Throw a lot of screen passes, use that screen game. And what was so maddening for Colts fans, and I'm sure everybody watching that cared about this game here at Indy, was the simple fact that that screen game over and over and over killed them. To the point where I don't know what Gus Bradley was doing. I don't know if he feels he didn't have any answer. and He just kind of maintained. But they just offensively let Cincinnati and Jake Browning just go that screen game all the way down the field to the point to where it killed them. Now, granted, when you look at the stats alone, you look at Higgins, you look at Chase, you look at Boyd, there was nothing overwhelming about that. You look at their stats, you're probably going to say, hey, the Colts have a really good chance to win. But it was the screen game. And, Tony, I'll give you a great point here. At the end of the half, we all thought that turn of events, the pick six, um, and then all that entailed them tying that up, going into the half. You thought, wow, you're going to come out in the third quarter and the Colts are going to put the hammer down. But the Bengals went right back to that screen game. And if you remember at the end of the half, Jake Browning looked shook. He looked shook. And you wondered how he was going to be in the second half. But they let him get comfortable again. And that is, I think, what people question regarding Gus Bradley and this defense. He so oftentimes it seems like this defense lets teams get comfortable. In this case, you had a backup quarterback, you had no pressure. This team has been really good, the Colts, putting pressure on the quarterback this season. It was non existent yesterday, and they let a backup guy get comfortable and then kind of get get a little bit out of sorts. And then reestablish that level of comfort, and they didn't have a chance. I mean, really, they didn't have a chance all day long. But the defensive approach was baffling at best.
0: Well, you're you're kind. Baffling kind. at best is, is <laughs> kind. Remember that if you want to say he looked shook going into the half, well, they yeah. they got the ball coming out of the half and went immediately down. Did the Bengals for a touchdown?
2: Yeah, they did. Yeah, and that's that's just the thing. You, you, all right, you, you saw what they were doing well. And again, screen after screen after screen, and for the Colts not to step up and stop it, I—I I mean, it's just—it's it, inexcusable, absolutely inexcusable. I—I I don't know if they do have want anyway, but I mean, you look at the second half, you get yourself off to a good, established start, and you give yourself a chance. But what they did, they let Jake Browning get comfortable, this offense get comfortable in Cincinnati, and now you have to deal with Cincinnati, who own the tiebreaker. Cleveland owns the tiebreaker. That's why you got to beat Pittsburgh on Saturday. I mean, you got all these teams around you that own this tiebreaker, the AFC, you lose this game, and you're gonna be crying for help to make the postseason.
0: Talking to JMV, he is the voice of sports in Indiana, ninety three five, one oh seven five the fan out of Indianapolis. Take a look at Zach Moss's production. Thirteen carries, twenty eight yards. What's going on? He can't
2: run it. <laughs> he can't he can't run it. You see, and no, I, no, that's I, not gonna
0: work. Yeah. He, nah, you, no, you went from a guy who can run it. You bring back Jonathan Taylor, and now he's a guy who can't run it. Sorry, it yeah. doesn't make sense.
2: I know. I well, I don't know if it's a combination of offensive line not doing the work, or just Moss, or or teams this deep, Tony, in the season defensively figuring it out. You go back, and I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but a lot, a lot of the work, the solid work that we saw Moss get off to, in you know, the first four weeks of the season when when Jonathan Taylor was still out, that work was done with Anthony Richardson. So I, I was thinking yesterday, you know, maybe this has to do with, you know, Moss being an effective more, you know, playing and thriving more when Richardson was out there than he is with Minshew. I, I don't know if that's a major factor, but at least I got to thinking about that yesterday. But this, again, details how important Jonathan Taylor is to this team. And they squeezed by the Titans last week, again, without a running game, and just simply could not do that yesterday. So we asked the question going into this week whether or not Jonathan Taylor, in a short week of work, they play on Saturday, but whether or not he is going to you know, be able to play, going back from that thumb situation or if he's going to miss again because this is a vital time to have your biggest playmaker be sitting on the bench coming back from an injury and it's unfortunate because yes i would trust the running game would be much better if him out there and for the past two weeks has been simply not existent
0: is there any thought in your head as this team looks towards the rest of the season a desire to well if we can be in the playoff hunt we might as well try no one's talking about replacing Minshew, are they? And I, I, it's no. not that he had an awful game. It's just there was no scoring in this game. Has anyone discussed it?
2: Nah. Nah, they're going to go with him. is going to go with
0: him. And, and you're
2: right. I mean, teams defensively, they can take away as much as they can a guy like Zach Moss because they're also not scared of Minshew and this offense going down the field on him. We talked about this, you know, basically the entire season without Anthony Richardson. There is. Not at all Um, any worry, any doubt about what you're doing when you're facing this Colts offense about going down the field. And that's something you'd hoped you got. And honestly, Tony, you got it a couple of different times in that Tennessee game. And you can see that it does open up things for you, even if they didn't run the football well. It just makes you a threat. And more often than not, defensively, you don't have to worry too much about the Colts being that threat. But you know, in terms of replacing Gardner Minshew, I think the only way that's going to happen is if he gets injured. kind of wondered yesterday, he was a little bit wobbly after one of those hits, and and you kind of thought, I wonder if he's going to go out and get checked up. He didn't, and he's going to be the guy come hell or high water for Shane Steichen.
0: Let's take it off of the Colts, and let's move it on over to the NBA. You've got the in-season tournament. Everybody heads over to Vegas only to have the Lakers beat the Pacers because the Pacers have no defense whatsoever. Am, am I supposed to just be impressed that the Pacers made it uh, to uh, th- this, uh, this cup uh, opportunity? Or should I be looking at the Pacers saying, this is exactly what we're talking about? You guys are exciting as hell, but you need all the pieces.
2: No, we're going to find out if this is exactly what you're talking about, but the Lakers are just better. And, and Anthony Davis was good. You know, Miles Turner didn't show, Buddy Hield didn't show, their veteran guys, Bruce Brown had a no-show as well. You can't have that and compete an entire game with the Lakers like that. Now, it's funny, I don't take whatsoever normally moral victories out of this, but this tournament still, Tony, it benefited the Pacers more than it benefited anybody. They had that celebration for the Lakers and the confetti and all that crap, in Vegas after the win on Saturday night, but it still was more beneficial for the Pacers. They needed that. But I can tell you right here what will take that away, what will wash out absolutely everything if they go to Detroit tonight and look like garbage and that same old kind of let-down baloney because this is not one of these prime-time games where everybody's watching. If they revert back to being a team, Tony, for example, we saw against Chicago here in Indy, you know, Charlotte here in Indy, that Blazer game here in Indy, if you go back to that, then that's where I'm going to be angry. I'm not angry about Saturday night. I want these guys to show up and at least compete down the stretch, and they didn't, and that's unfortunate. It's too bad. But the experience overall was still incredibly beneficial. You erase all of that if you jack around and you go to Detroit, and a team I believe has lost 18 or 19 consecutive games. They haven't won 19. Since October. 19. I think it's yeah. They haven't won since October, so if you go up there and lose that tonight or play down to that, then you're going to look like a phony. And By the way, they have to go on the road to Milwaukee on Wednesday, and you don't think Milwaukee's going to think about what took place on Thursday night and all that that entailed uh, with that game out in Vegas and that semifinal. That would be one game I'm assuming they probably already have highlighted right there. So tonight, you just don't want to see the Pacers go back. We, we have to hold them to a higher standard now a higher level of expectations. And, and this is exactly why,
0: J.M.V., exactly why yeah. I asked the question last week about uh, have they put too much into winning the tournament and therefore they'll maybe there'll be too much coming down from that. you got to be able to grind out a season because it's the playoffs that matter, not this in-season stuff.
2: Yeah, and don't be phony. You know what I mean? If you're a team, if you're these guys, don't be phony. You're absolutely right. And there is a difference. And I know it's a long season. And I know on a Monday night, and you know, the clown show that's Detroit in general, that's probably not a great place where you want to show up, but it's your job. And if you truly are different, if you truly believe yourself to be among the better teams in the East, this is a part of the resume. This is the part of the schedule that you show it. I mean, anybody can get up for Boston. Anybody can get up for Milwaukee. Anybody can get up for the Lakers. But can you get up for this team that's awful and it's just begging you to beat them and then get the heck out of Dodge? So if you play down to that level, then you're going to prove to a lot of people around here the unfortunate status is up until this point, you still lack the maturity or you're a phony, make believe type of team. And that's be unfortunate because they built. They built a lot, and I mean a lot of confidence in this Pacer fan you know, over the past week and so. And that's why I thought that you look back at that tournament and you know, even the losing that to the Lakers on Saturday, I mean that's something you could play off of. But not if you go into Detroit and just revert back to some of the stuff we've been disappointed in so far this year.
0: JMV, the voice of sports in Indiana, 935-1075, the fan out of Indianapolis. I appreciate you taking the time. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. As we've stated many times, when you have a market like this, when you have an economy like this, there are groups and there are people who will do everything they can to take advantage of it and take advantage of opportunities. In this case, Macy's getting a $5.8 billion buyout offer. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. It values the shares at $21 a share compared to uh, what was, you know, Close, which is just over 17. Mace has been having sales issues, but they have said while they're looking not at traditional malls anymore, they're looking at other spots to open stores like, like they have, not they have not ruled out their own growth, not by any stretch. I have no idea what they're going to do or where the, where the deal is going to go. I just think it interesting that even though things are down, people still see opportunity, which is a pretty important skill to have. This is Tony Katz today.